0: Jerry Buting has worked for more than 35 years as a criminal lawyer in the state of Wisconsin, exclusively focused on the defense of serious criminal cases. Up until 2016, he was not known to everyone with a Netflix account. But making a murderer changed all of that. Today, with just two days to go until the US attempts to elect a new president, I speak to Jerry Buting about why policing, law, order and justice have become maybe the most important issues in the minds of voters, why he believes the Jacob Blake murder and subsequent riots took place in Wisconsin, and his thoughts on how this key swing state will go. What you're about to hear is just a taste of the full interview. To hear the whole thing, including an update on the Avery case, you know what to do. This week, members got three extra episodes, including two full updates from the campaign trail from our US correspondent, the brilliant Marion McKeown. And if this election result is contested, that series may run and run. This week, you can save 15% by signing up for an annual membership of Irishman Abroad over at patreon.com forward slash Irishman There's hundreds of episodes for you to enjoy in our fully searchable archive, including two extra Jerry Beating episodes, a couple of clicks and all of it appears in your podcast app for less than a fiver per month. Our chosen charity partner, as always, is Jigsaw.ie, an incredible Irish youth mental health charity that could really do with your help this week. We all remember how hard it was to be a young person. Well, imagine what it's like now with all of this uncertainty. It breeds anxiety and they need help. Jigsaw can't continue to provide the services it does without your help. So pop over there if you can this week. Jigsaw.ie. That's the small talk. Now let's get down to business. Now, your program. What's the big idea? Well, they have learned to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works.
1: I moved over here and immediately
0: I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been green behind the red white and blue our family is very irish you know now ladies and gentlemen we have a very special announcement to make at this stage would you welcome these the wonderful Threego? jerry buting it's fantastic to have you back on irishman abroad you've done a couple of episodes now including an episode of irishman behind bars but i don't think we've ever spoken at a a more uh, more of a cusp moment in the history of America we're a few days away from election day, and you're in a swing state of Wisconsin. My first question to you, though, Jerry, would be which is more important, given that this is a state with a huge coronavirus problem, which is more important this election or actually trying to survive this pandemic?
1: Well, thank you. It's really good to be back again. Uh, Jarlath, I really um, have enjoyed our, our discussions. You know, it's a good question. In my state, which is a swing state and a very divided state, it's it's closer, you know, the polls are closer right now than, than you might think they should be. I do think that probably the coronavirus is the most important thing for people. Um, but there is a great deal of division about how we go about dealing with that. And there's a lot of people who are less afraid of getting sick or even dying from coronavirus than you might think. There's a lot of people who are actually more concerned about the economy and uh, shutdowns and, you know, the the mental and emotional effect that has, uh, rising unemployment. And, you know, they've been receiving mixed messages from the White House uh, throughout. And, you know, and so some people really think there's it's nothing big. It's just like the flu. And some people still think people aren't dying. And yet in Wisconsin, we're, we're experiencing an incredible COVID spike right now. It's way worse than it was in April when we when we stayed at home and had a lockdown. We're not in lockdown at this point. And we've, we've had over 4,000 new positive tests a day now for several days, uh, something approaching 50 deaths. Hospitals are almost full, over 85%, both in beds and in ICU. Uh, they've opened up a field hospital and they're starting to, the first patients are, are arriving in these recent days. So, you know, it's serious. And, and yet, there is this divide, as you see all over America, and in the UK, frankly, I I know that we're, we're seeing it in Europe too now, over, you know, how to how to deal with this, I've always felt that, look, the economy will come back when we get control of this virus, we need to get control of this virus in order to get the economy back in order to open up in order to get back to normal. And as long as people aren't willing to take the, the, the measures to be safe, to wear masks, to social distance, to limit their contact in, in groups, then it's just going to continue. And we've seen that in the last couple of months where Wisconsin is now one of the worst states in America on COVID, COVID explosion here.
0: You know, the last time around, the big buzzword and the Uh, the evidence was clear that there was a huge disconnect between what was happening in the lives of people, what mattered to people. And that's why I I start with this question. Do you feel like this time around it's any different? Or are you watching it just like the last time and perhaps felt that people people are unaware of how... This is going on over their heads while their real lives and their real matters are not being addressed because, you know, on our on our show, um, Irish Man in America with Marion McKeown, Marion, who's been a a resident in the US for some time and has covered many elections and events in US history, said that we got it all wrong. We missed it last time around. We just missed it. We just completely missed what was actually happening in these people's lives. Is there any sense of that uh, on this election or does this, Jerry, feel like a completely different moment in history, given what people have witnessed over the last four years? Well, it's you know, it's hard to say. I, I'm certainly
1: not viewing it the way I did four years ago. I mean, I was largely fooled by the polls, just as most people were and surprised at the outcome, I you know, but I, I think there is a, a qualitative difference here. Trump, you know, for all of his, you know, idiotic, uh, frankly, stupid things that he says is a clever politician in a lot of ways. And, you know, it may just simply be that he's a clever and successful demagogue, but he did tap into four years ago an unrest, particularly in the manufacturing sector and in white America that... You know we we have been going undergoing a global change. You know jobs have been we have been leaving America, going and in, in the UK as well, and particularly in the manufacturing sectors and and going to cheaper labor countries. And Trump, that is, it sort of tapped into that unrest and that that fear for the future and blamed it on immigrants when really that wasn't who was taking jobs, certainly not in America. Uh, you know, it was globalization that was taking our jobs. Yeah, and technology. Um, and technology, right? And you know, we are going through a, a dramatic transformation of you know the the information age and social media and um, you know and and people. Whenever you see that in history, um, there's always a, an unsettling. People don't like change, and when you see it on a big societal scale, big groups of society react and. I think then you combined that with what we'd had in America four years ago, which was really uh, decades of complete dysfunction in Washington, inability gridlock, inability to get anything done, that I do think that there was a certain amount of attitude, let's just blow the damn thing up and let's let's elect this guy who's a businessman, who's a reality TV star and he'll do things different and you know he was saying all the right things that he's going to clean the swamp and all these uh, other promises that were never kept but so bringing us now four years later i i don't think people really there are some people who like his style who like that he's shaking things up and that he's blowing up institutions and norms and because they didn't like those to begin with, but I don't think most people do. I, I don't, you know, the coarseness of him, the crude things that he says, sometimes downright mean things he says. I don't think most people, even among his supporters, really like. But he has a, a an appeal to people that, well, you know, I, I like what I like some of his policies. Yeah, I don't like the man. Some people like. I can't stand the man, but I like his policies and. I don't know how they can feel that after the last, whatever it is, seven, eight months of, of COVID, but, you know, the, in fairness, the media, I mean, looking at it as, an, as a, an outsider, to me, the media has been pretty biased against him. Some would argue, in fact, myself would argue it's been justified because of the stuff he's done is pretty outrageous. But, you know, you do hear a lot of uh, one-sided messages uh, and, and by the way, I don't know if you have seen, I'll put in a plug, I have nothing to do with it, but it's a very interesting documentary on Netflix called Social Dilemma. And it came out uh, late August. And it's a really fascinating portrayal of social media, particularly the big, you know, the big tech, uh, Google, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and they have People who are uh, former executives from all of those companies, and, and people who devised algorithms, who monetized social media, and they talk about how they really had no idea what they were doing, <laughs> no idea, no idea that they were creating these algorithms that would and would actually result in 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 more divisiveness. To the point where now uh, it's really hard to, to understand how somebody can take the other view. It's like, you you got to be crazy. You know, we, we are so locked into our own views about things that it's very hard to have a discourse with anybody from the other side, because it seems like to both sides, it seems like all they're doing is, is speaking in talking points.
0: Yeah, I mean, that, that's definitely a, a source of agreement between both candidates is the reform of those things and these kind of uncontrollable reptiles that have become these social media giants. But like, you you know, when we talk about things that are staring us in the face that we've missed in this, for me personally, I, I sometimes lie awake at night, like a lot of us <laughs> during all of this, and I, I go, well, maybe it's going to take four years to get on top of this uh, virus. Like, essentially, you're not really electing a president in the normal sense. You're electing a representative to oversee the attempt to control, restrain or wrestle to the ground. A virus that's wiped out nearly a quarter of a million people in your country and decimated any type of uh, economic development that he might have been able to, you know, tag his hopes on. It literally is through the looking glass and... (laughs) In the midst of all of that, you, know, you and I have spoken about r- reforms that are needed in the justice system, things like, you know, uh, the lack of adequate funding for defence of poor people in, in courts, to, uh, this addiction that America has to long sentences, uh, flawed forensic science. These are just some of the things that you and I have spoken about. There must be an an urgency within you, Jerry, and other lawyers to get this guy out on the basis that he is certainly not going to do much for you in terms of reforming these things.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. In, in, in 2016, in the Republican primary, actually, you know, Trump and all the Republicans were, were talking a good good tune or whistling a good tune here about criminal justice reform. And, and it really was... A bipartisan issue: reforming criminal justice, reducing mass incarceration. Places like Texas had shown, for uh, you know, for over five years back in 2016, that they'd been able to reduce their prison population significantly um, and saved you know hundreds of millions of dollars of taxpayer funds that could go elsewhere. Um, and so, you know, I at least was more hopeful that when trump was elected no matter who got elected trump or hillary that there would be continued interest in criminal justice reform my hopes were really dashed when i saw him appoint attorney general sessions um he was one of two senators who were blocking criminal justice reform at the federal level just die hard and so that you know that didn't look good. And and I think I've been right. You know, Sessions disbanded the National Forensic Science Commission and, you know, tried to regress on uh, prosecution of drug cases and all kinds of different ways. But Jared Kushner was really the only one, I think, in the administration that was pushing towards any kind of reform. And we did get the a small step of, um, you know, reducing some federal prison at least reducing some of the the pressure on the federal prisons, but not much. Then, you know, we had this remarkable development with George Floyd being murdered on the streets of Minneapolis, uh, a state not unlike Wisconsin, um, but a state, a city that had 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 a long, long history of discord and conflict between the police department and the communities of color. And so, you know, looking back, as you you look at what happened, it's not surprising that it happened in Minneapolis. But to most of America, and probably most of the world, it it seems surprising that it happened in Minnesota, you know, relatively progressive state. But I was really blown away at the response and the, the marches all over the country. And, you know, the looking back at other cases that had Uh, had it happened recently. Breonna Taylor, nobody heard about Breonna Taylor's horrible tragedy until after the George Floyd murder. And, you know, as an insider uh, in criminal justice who's done civil rights and criminal defense, you know, I know that there's all kinds of barriers to fairness and justice. And when it comes to civil rights, one of the biggest barriers is this idea of qualified immunity that police have that makes it very, very, they're immune from civil liability if they kill somebody or violate their criminal, their civil rights in, in virtually all situations the way the case law has developed. And this doctrine of qualified immunity, which by the way, when it comes to prosecutors and judges and even witnesses who perjure themselves in court,
0: they have absolute immunity, they cannot be sued
1: now, uh, no, where you're... does
0: that come from, Jerry? Because that is obviously counterintuitive. You say it's as the case law is developed, but like surely, I mean, anyone with two eyes can see that that is open to all sorts of abuse and, you know, cases falling through the cracks. Right. You you would think so. But And here's the interesting thing. Qualified
1: immunity for police and absolute immunity for prosecutors and judges uh, has never been passed as a law by any legislature. It's not a democratically enacted policy. It is created by the courts. It was created by the courts. You know, conservatives often object to or, or characterize so-called liberal judges as activist judges who who don't follow the law and sort of, you know, legislate from the bench. We hear all these buzzwords from them. But in in fact, conservative judges do it just as much. And when it comes to, to these immunity proceeding um, provisions, that's where it came from. And on its face, when it comes to, let's say, prosecutors or judges, you know, some degree of immunity is probably a good thing because we don't want them to be chilled from the exercise of their lawful duties, you know, afraid to prosecute somebody because they'll be sued. But to grant absolute immunity, and particularly even if, I mean, I had a case where a prosecutor violated. A judge's clear order and destroyed evidence that he was ordered not to touch, and because he was acting as a prosecutor in the in the case, he was completely immune, absolutely immune from any civil liability. And so, I mean, that's where these these immunity provisions came from. But but what I really found amazing is when when I, I would see people start all of a sudden talking. In the public discourse about qualified immunity, when I would see signs of marchers, down, you know, marching down the street, abolish qualified immunity. I mean, nobody had even heard of qualified immunity outside of lawyers, and now here we were with the the ordinary citizenry protesting it. And some progress was made; it looked like, but again, in Congress, the the Senate blocked the biggest. Reform bill because specifically because of this immunity provision and the liability they, you know, they the um, law enforcement lobbies pushed hard and They did not want to um, abolish that kind of protection and that's the reason that's important And listeners got to understand this isn't just a legal doctrine. This is this is a, a doctrine that controls or affects behavior if police know that they can be sued and, uh, you know, if they shoot somebody in the back or they violate someone's civil rights, you know, they're good. They will be chilled from doing that kind of misconduct. But when they realize, hey, there's there's no harm, no foul. No, nothing's going to happen to me. Maybe I'll be suspended for a time and, or get a desk job for a while until they reinstate me. Uh, worst case scenario, maybe I'll lose my job and then I'll go off to another police department and work. You know, that that's what qualified immunity has done is it has allowed the bad cops uh, cover for continuing the kind of behaviour that that's caused so much discord.
0: And that's the heart of this, right? That is, if we are looking at a health emergency, we're looking at a, a police and judicial system emergency in America, because what we're what we witnessed since Jacob Blake, since Brianna Taylor, is a realisation among the people that many, many people have no faith at all in the fairness, in the, the core principles of right and wrong in the police force. Am I going too far in saying that or is the view from this side of the Atlantic, again, part of that echo chamber that the social media platforms have created? But to me, that's how it appears.
1: Well, you know, it is still very divided among racial lines in America. You know, if you're a person of colour, you are much less likely to trust the police than if you're not, Um, if you're white. But that's also changing, particularly with young people. If you watch these marches, they were very diverse. These were not just you know black people, brown people complaining about police shooting them and killing their loved ones. You know these were um, there was large groups of white people as well. And you know of course one of the problems with this, and and frankly I, I have to wonder how much of this was was deliberate, but. You know, when protests turn violent, then public sympathy for the protesters' cause also dissipates or turns against them. And Trump has, has, you know, manipulated that very well. What happened in Kenosha is a perfect example. But, you know, it's also an age-old trick. The Romans used to do it. Whenever there would be any kind of civil discord, they would send in the thugs to make it t- to turn violent you know <laughs> you know and you, you see it all kinds of right wing dictatorships the same kind of thing when when people start protesting they th- send in people to pretend that they're uh, also protesters and turn the incidents violence and then turn public opinion against them so there's some of that that's happened here um, that you know the support for the protest movement and reform in criminal justice as a whole has gone down. I mean, in early summer, it was maybe 67, 70 percent in America. But then after these incidents of violence and um, it's gone down to more closer to 50 percent, frankly.
0: Right. Well, let me ask you this, though, Jerry, you say the Kenosha was and Wisconsin specifically was, you know, in the same way as Minneapolis was it made sense that this kind of thing could occur there are we talking about a problem with police training are we talking with uh, talking about a, a culture is it is this all bound up in this kind of entrenched attitudes and pro-gun lobbies or, or is this just a simple thing of people just not knowing how to de-escalate situations and do their job in such a way that they don't pull a gun and shoot somebody in the back?
1: Well, you know, it's it's a combination of all those things. In some jurisdictions, it's one more than the other. So, you know, training is a big issue. Temperament, the type of people that are recruited into uh, police jobs, you know, needs to be changed. They need to be tightened up and maybe um, – and also what, what we expect police to do, you know, how we bring police into – Volatile situations, dangerous situations with people who are having mental breakdowns and things, not surprisingly, escalate when there are ways to, to bring in professionals who are better equipped to de-escalate somebody who's having a mental episode than the police are. But then there are also departments that are really rogue from the top. The attitude, I talk about this a little bit in my in my book, Illusion of Justice, about how in America sheriffs, prosecutors are all elected and at the county level. And uh, they're almost always running unopposed. And you have this sort of uh, churning of the same kinds of people with the same attitudes serving long terms as a sheriff. When they retire, they handpick their successor and they continue the same policies and the same mindset. And there are, you know, the Kenosha Sheriff has a long history of of um, discord with their community of color, much less so than the city police, for instance. We saw that in Manitowoc in the, in the the Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey making a murderer case, you know where the same kinds of people were basically controlling law enforcement in a county, and you know they get a they get sort of this um, power trip and think they can do things their way. and you know, as younger ones are brought into the department, they're learning, mentored from others who are perpetuating this, these negative uh, views of their citizens. And, you know, the, the, the reason, you know, they've lost sight of the idea that we are police are to protect and serve. And, and I think even young idealistic officers who join those kinds of departments. Uh, either leave or become corrupted to the same kind of mindset themselves because it 's impossible to really survive in those departments if you're not
0: that's that's kind of chilling right and also for you doing your job i mean i've i've really enjoyed these conversations that we've had over the years both on stage and the, here on the podcast about what your job is and how challenging it is in a court system that's as overworked as yours is. Now, uh, if anyone wants to do some outside reading or download other episodes, they can. you can really dive into what we're about to talk about here in brief. But this is a machine, essentially, that tries to churn out and is expected to churn out so many uh, verdicts and results that it, you know, it's, it's failing to meet the demand on its capacity. So what we've talked about in the past is this, you know, the giving up your right to a trial and the pressure to do that. And then the stakes being even higher if you choose to go to a trial and finding yourself in prison for a long period waiting trial and then going to jail for an awful long time for misdemeanors. I think I've asked you in the past before, Jerry, but it's worth asking again. It must be exceptionally hard to operate in that system, seeing the problems over and over again over all these years.
1: You know, it is hard. And, um, you know, at times I, I lapse into moments of despair, frankly, that, that things don't haven't seemed to have gotten better over the, the course of my career, maybe in a lot of areas until very recently. They've gotten worse. Um, but, you know, I, I pull myself out of that because ultimately you do have to have hope and you do have to have to fight against these kinds of injustices. You know, it's interesting. I got a critique on my book. The subtitle of my book was Inside Making a Murderer and America's Broken System. And I got a critique from somebody who said, no, 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 the system's not broken in America, the justice system. It's operating exactly how it was designed, (laughs) (laughs) which is an interesting perspective. And, you know, but but it.